Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of our dedicated B Corp series, Business for Good. Today I catch up with one of the most inspiring and passionate B Corp leaders, Sasha Tiskowski. Sasha is the co-founder and CEO of Koskela, one of Australia's leading sustainable furniture and homeware brands. Hey Sasha, uh, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Pretty well, thanks, Vince. It's great to be here. Oh, it's really cool to see you uh, again. Um, and I haven't seen you for a little while with COVID lockdown and people not moving around and meeting personally as much. But we're thankfully in our studio in Alexandria in Sydney, face to face, a meter and a half apart. <laughs> <laughs> but it's lovely to see you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. There's been a lot happening since we caught up on the, it's actually our second podcast, you and your husband, Russell. Uh, we're on the podcast, the second one that we did in 2018. Um, and it's like we've done 91 episodes since, which is really, really cool. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. I, I know at the, in the beginning I was slightly kind of naive and scared and uh, you guys took full advantage of me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a, it was great to catch up and, and, um, and to hear all about your business uh, and how it started, et cetera, et cetera. So anyone listening in, make sure you listening to listen to our original podcast as well with Sasha and Russell, uh, episode two. Um, and what excites me is that, you know, four years later, your business has changed again. There's a lot happened in, is it four years? Holy cow, four years. <laughs> and so much to kind of new to talk about and so much change has happened in, in your business uh, and what you're doing. Um, we're excited because we've become a, a B Corp uh, business as well. And this is part of the B Corp series. So last year we worked, uh, I think it took more than a year, but maybe two years we worked on becoming a B Corp organization. So focusing on being a business for good in the world and all, that's, uh, all, that, all that that means and the kind of the guidance and... and uh, rules around that with uh, B Corp is really, really cool. You guys were one of the first B Corps in furniture companies in Australia. The first. The really? first. Thank in you Australia? for correcting me. Yep. That, and that's that's really, really important. And obviously you, you saw that that was important way back then. Um, when was that, by the way? Was that like over four years ago? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember actually when we first were certified, probably around four or five years ago, um, about five years ago, actually. And mm. I think I had come across the idea of a B Corp about three years before that. So um, we just weren't quite ready at the time um, to go down that pathway, but it was certainly something that I was really interested in um, and really wanted Koskala to um, be part of. Mm. Yeah. Because I think talking to Andrew Davies last week in Melbourne, uh, I think, uh, who is the CEO of Australia New Zealand, he was talking about B Corp was started in 2007, I think it was. So it's not that old, really, in the scheme of things. Yeah. So you were actually one of these people that saw this. You were looking for it, presumably. Yeah, I think I first came across it when I started exploring Patagonia's story. Mm. So for people out there, Patagonia's um, now, I think, the and still is the largest B Corp um, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do over a billion dollars in revenue. Um, and I have sort of secret ambition of being the Patagonia of the furniture world. <laughs> mm. So um, that's what I'd love Koskala to kind of be known as. Um, I'm just yeah in awe of their model and the way that they um, 
base they consider every decision they make that is really cool and and you know we're, we've been trying we have actually asked andrew to help us get the founder or the ceo of patagonia on the podcast if we get them can you help me interview him sure i'd be honored because you need to <laughs> you need to grill them right you need to find out how to become yeah the patagonia of the yep. furniture world okay cool that sounds that sounds really exciting well you probably know do you know all about them I know quite a bit, yeah. Read okay. read a lot of books and listened to interviews with Eve Shournard, who is the Eve, founder. That's so um, good, yeah. Yeah, so it's still a um, privately owned business, which in some ways I think is the um, gives them the ability to do what they do the way that they do it. Yeah, and always it's always referred to, isn't it? In every conversation, it's like well, Patagonia. Yeah, because people relate to it and they know that it's a very successful business. Mm. What I loved about B Corp is that when you when you in a business that's focused on doing good like us, you attract a lot of charities, you know, and yeah. and and the thought of making profit kind of goes out the window <laughs> initially. But with B Corp, it's, it's people, planet, and profit, and 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 profit shouldn't be kind of like you know diminished because of your focus on doing doing good things, you know. And that was a real eye opener for me, and I feel relieved to be honest that we can actually be a a successful business in in all aspects of what we do yeah i think i mean at the end of the day you're a business not a charity mm. um and the idea of a b corp is it is around um certifying businesses and if you aren't profitable and don't have a successful business you don't have enough money to invest in the programs mm. um that you want to so it's sort of a chicken and egg thing yeah yeah Absolutely. Let's backtrack a little bit. Um, and for anyone who hasn't listened to the first podcast yeah. that we did, you know, uh, four years ago, can you just kind of tell me about uh, what made you start Coskella? Yeah, you and Russell back uh, back in the olden days. Back 22 years ago. Jesus. Yeah, long, long time ago. Wow. <laughs> um, well, there were sort of, uh, I guess, like our we had two different sort of motivations. So for Russell, he was a trained interior designer. He's a trained interior designer, but always loved furniture. Um, so his sort of guiding passion is design and furniture. And for me, I had had um, various sort of corporate roles. Um, and my motivation was the idea of being able to design a company, um, a company that kind of represented our values. Mm. Um, so that was really why the two of us sort of came together and we were also involved romantically. Um, <laughs> but do you want to go into that? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> um, but we, um, both of us had sort of got to a point in our careers where we could either continue on those trajectories or do something completely different. And we were fortunate when we started, we didn't have children, we didn't have a mortgage, so, you know, the risk is lower. Mm. You're a certified B Corp um, in an industry where uh, supply chain and logistics and all aspects of unethical production um, are, are going on because it's like people are still buying furniture from all over the world, unaware of what consequence that might have on the environment. When did you decide to make things locally and design and make locally? Because that, that was, there wasn't many people doing that. Actually, or maybe there still isn't, but... Yeah, there was sort of next to none. So when we first started the business in 2000, it really coincided with a time in Australia's history where our whole manufacturing sector was being offshored. Mm. So um, we only... Norman and Quain was sort of uh, one of the original furniture design um, kind of houses in Australia at the time who were um, committed to manufacturing locally. Um, and when we first started, I felt very strongly that we should manufacture locally and work with the local manufacturing industry um, so that we had control over our supply chain. So we knew what was going into our products, who was making them, the conditions in which they were being made. Um, and at the time, um, there was a lot of offshoring to China and at that time, there weren't many regulations or controls within that sort of manufacturing sector. 
so that was really important and really a foundation of the business. And we're really lucky that a lot of our key suppliers, um, we still work with nearly, you know, 19, 20 years later mm. um, and have built really firm friendships and relationships with. Was there, was there any um, scepticism originally <laughs> in the beginning around, you know, were people comfortable with buying local? Because it's kind of a funny thing. No. <laughs> yeah. They want Italian, right? Or they want European or want to... I mean, I think that still exists in Australia. I mm. think um, often Australians don't think something's good unless someone internationally tells them it's mm. good. Mm -hmm. um, so um, if you win an international design award or if you're sold in a store in New York or Los Angeles, then suddenly um, Australians will sort of take you seriously. Mm. Um, and we certainly, there was no value placed on being Australian made um, when we started. That definitely has changed. So we've probably seen that shift in the last five years where there's actually been... Um, more of a value that's placed on on that. Um, and then COVID's been really interesting because suddenly people started to take note of where products were coming from because they couldn't get them. Um, and there was sort of like a light bulb moment, I think, within our political kind of sphere and also within consumers where they went, but hang on, why don't we make those things here? What's happened? Like, And I think there was mm -hmm. a realisation that suddenly... Maybe that wasn't sort of the optimal outcome. It's interesting. We're sitting here in the studio in Sydney on our Roadcast machine with road microphones designed and made in Silverwater down the road. It's great. Uh, it's one of the greatest success stories in this country. And, and I think they sell like 1% in Australia. The mm. rest is around the world. So in a guess in a way, they, pe people elsewhere can't buy local for road. But, I mean, what a success story that is. And, and it, it always kind of blows me away when you come across a business that's kind of quietly successful yeah <laughs> you know it's just like doing really really great design and you know technology and yeah. very innovative uh, and making it happen and I guess what you, you, you think like your timing was perfect for you guys wasn't it because it's like it seems like everybody's certainly lately last few years have got very conscientious or not everyone of course but more people, more than more than often, people are going right. You know, I want to do the right thing. Mm. I want to know what the right thing is to do. You know, I want to buy, you know, sustainable products, etc. Yeah. Have you, have you found that like growing over time? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also, um, particularly in the last couple of years, there is much greater awareness around global warming, um, around the issues that that is going to have for sort of every aspect of our life. And I think there is a rise of sort of more conscious consumerism. Mm. So we've seen sort of a lot of interest in the fashion industry mm. and um, issues around fast fashion and, you know, a lot of that sort of um, the problems around that coming to the fore and people starting to sort of question, you know, whether or not they really need that, you know, particular T-shirt or something. Um and, yeah, we're finding the same. I mean, we've always thought that as originators of product, we had a responsibility to ensure that um, whatever we produced was produced in the right way and that it was as sustainable as it could be. Um, that is an ever kind of evolving process and we're never perfect. And we've um, really in the last couple of years um, done a lot of work in measuring our emissions, so really understanding and drilling down into... Um, where our footprint um, is derived from. And so the next, we have pretty ambitious sort of targets around that. We want to be, get to sort of absolute zero emissions by 2030. So that means using no offsets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and that involves really looking at some of the materials that we use in our manufacture and how, how we sort of go about um, selling those, um, which is really exciting actually. So it's a really amazing opportunity to um, sort of, yeah, for us to reinvent our business again. So is this your impact activities? Our impact activities sort of fall into two camps. So one is um, the work that we do with First Nations artists. So mm -hmm. um, last year we were really excited to announce that we um, returned over a million dollars worth of income or generated it really in collaboration amazing. with the artists um, 
So that's gone into either the artist pockets or um, into the art centres um, that are all community owned and run as not-for-profits. So that was really exciting. Um, so that that's sort of one aspect of the impact work and then the other side is our sustainability and what we do in relation to that. Uh, you, you and Russell are very can-do. I mean, you guys, <laughs> like, just... I, 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 we talked earlier about offline about, you know, the... You <laughs> two things that could kill, you know, like just it'd just be so stressful to kill me doing something like that. Um, not that we just mentioned, yeah. but just kind of the move and the you know when you moved into the Rosebury headquarters, um, it was like how many square meters is that? Ten thousand square meters? Two thousand. Oh, I big enough. It, I thought it was bigger than that. <laughs> felt like an airport hangar, but it was like it enormous, did feel like an enormous in a place that wasn't mm. particularly populated by. I mean, it was industrial. Um, but you you gentrified the whole bloody area. Yeah. <laughs> in the last in the last ten years, it's a completely different place. In fact, we just bought a place around the corner from it, just as you were moving Exiting. out. Exiting. My God. <laughs> um, so um, I thought it'd be handy to kind of pop in there every day and have a chat and you know <laughs> steal some furniture. Um, but you know, you you guys just are. Incredible! How does it the impact activities and things like that? Do you do you sit down with your with Russell or with a leadership team or your your, your company got you guys in the company and go, hey guys, what should we do this year? Or, um, or I'm really a- angry about this. Let's tackle this project or whatever. Definitely, like when we sort of started working in 2009 on the First Nations impact work, that was something that um, I guess I've driven for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now sort of at a point in time where we can um, have people working in that space um, where that's their sole focus, which is really exciting. Um, in terms of sustainability, I guess I still see myself as kind of being the primary driver of that. But um, for both aspects of our impact work, every um, different part of the business has um, yearly goals in relation to both of those things. So and they report on them to the whole organisation quarterly. So they're really embedded um, in the company. Um, it's not just something that, um, you know, pe- uh, like I do on a whim. <laughs> um, it's really part of the fabric of the business. And one one recent thing, I don't know if it's that recent, but you're, you're obviously a passionate climate activist and you help bring together a consortium of B Corps um, to call on the Aussie pol- politicians to take action against climate change. Um, passed the bill. Can you, can you talk about how, how that came about and what started that and what's it all about? Yeah, sure. So um, I have been the inaugural um, chairperson of the B Corp Climate Collective. So it's a group of B Corps that got together um, to help both um, sort of drive change within the B Corp community itself. So really look at sort of trying to push B Corps to be leaders in relation to sustainability and mm. um, uh, and what they were doing personally within their companies, but also like using their spheres of influence to kind of help drive change. And then the other aspect of that was in relation to sort of more activism. So awareness raising, um, really sort of trying to um, push the debate within Australia um, to force the, particularly at the federal level, um, some sort of proper science-based emissions reductions targets and things. Um, and we had done a bit of work to help support Zali Stegall's climate change bill, um, which she had drafted, which provide a mechanism, I guess, for Australia um, to take on that challenge um, and to stop the politicisation of um, climate action in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really, really important issue. It's something that I'm um, really driven to do something about. So I volunteer a lot of my spare time um, on working for an independent candidate like Zali in my electorate. Um, and I think it's something that all Australians need to kind of wake up on and realise that we have sort of a very limited window to affect change and to keep um, our planet kind of livable, actually. Mm. Um, and we all sort of need to really think about the upcoming election and use our vote really, really wisely. Mm. So 
I know in your electorate you've got a really great independent candidate, Dr Sophie Scomp. Yeah, that's so, right. Um, yeah, and basically the way the independents run and it's going to get pretty nasty, I think, from here on in yeah. um, to the election, the major parties will be attacking them at any sort of opportunity they can. Yeah. Um, and the independents really rely on individuals to volunteer and to play their part in kind of supporting their campaigns. Does this keep you up at night? I mean, is this something that really upsets you or concerns you? It must, must do, but I mean, and also, what's spare time? <laughs> you just said in your spare time you're doing this. I thought you had no spare time. I don't really, but I make time for it because I think so it's really critical. Yeah, 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 I just, I think, uh, you know, I've got, we've got two children. Um, I don't kind of want to leave them with a future that um, is fundamentally different from the one that we have now. Um, and for me, I think being able to channel kind of my frustration into something positive is really important. Um, I've definitely had moments where I have read articles about what's happening on the Barrier Reef and just been completely devastated mm. um, by it. So, mm. and just so frustrated that, you know, more people aren't aware of what's really going on. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a really um, problematic media um, uh, landscape in Australia with the Murdoch press. Mm. Um, they play a really negative, very big influence. Um, we've got actually a lot of issues with political donations um, in Australia mm. as well. So yeah. these are sort of all issues that the independent candidates are really looking at, um, trying to clean up. I mean, it's not as simple as saying this, but I've been saying for quite a while, design has got us into this situation you know, and design can get us out of this situation. Absolutely. Like, I actually think um, designers have a huge opportunity and sort of responsibility, actually, on the other sort of side of the coin um, to be involved in this and to be aware of it. Um, mm. So I think we shouldn't have designers working on sort of spinning, you know, creating campaigns that spin what fossil fuel industries are mm. doing, like... Um, we shouldn't, yeah, we can have designers who are working on the solutions to a lot of these issues and there is a huge power in design to tackle um, climate change. Absolutely. And, and, and there are loads of people doing that, of course. Um, but it's funny how design is often thought of something that's an aesthetic, you mm. know, a nice chair um, or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and, totally. And, you know, you, you turned up in your... Tesla, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's an incredible, mm. game-changing uh, piece of design. Yeah. And the idea was design. You know, yeah. it's not like design isn't just the end object or something that looks nice. It's actually design can, new thinking can change things for the better. I think, I think, and every single person out there, not just designers, has a responsibility to think about how can I, on the, in this day, on this project that I'm working on, think about it differently to ensure that I'm actually making some form of contribution to a positive change in the right direction. Yeah. I guess being aware of it firstly and knowing what part they can play in that versus thinking that someone somewhere, Sasha mm. is, you know, awake 24-7, working on beavering away on trying to solve these problems alone. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's like we all, can, we all have to play a part. And, yeah. and I guess it's this, the sense of urgency is like, I don't think people are aware. I, I mean... We're bombarded by in the press, but mm. I don't know how seriousness, how serious people are about I think it is, a, is an issue. Part still skepticism going on. Definitely, but only really within a small minority that happen to be very loud. So um, even the Murdoch press have kind of started to change their tune. Um, but we've been um, sort of misled, actually, for a number of years um, through the media um, about the role that government has to play in relation to climate action versus the private individual. And we've sort of been sold a bit of a pup, really, that somehow it's all up to individual responsibility to do their big composting and um, so on. But actually, we need the right political environment to really tackle this issue. And I think that's where every single Australian who's of voting age can play their part in mm. this election. Well, what do you want the, the outcome to be in this election? 
I would really like to see a lot of the community-backed independents um, elected to the House of Representatives and ideally for them to be holding um, the um, sort of balance of power um, within the House of Reps Um, because I think that way we will actually see change. It will be the beginning of kind of potentially a new sort of era really in Australia's democracy and in cleaning up the Australian Parliament. I was going to say, it all needs a redesign, doesn't it? It needs a big redesign, and I think, the f- yeah, this is sort of the beginning of it. I think this election could be, you know, a really um, historic one in some ways, um, that we will start to see the beginnings of what a new sort of political, um, a new sort of parliament might look like with a whole lot more women in it, which would be really good. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and a whole lot of candidates that are genuine representatives of their electorate. That's interesting. When you, when you, when you watch TV, which I don't watch a huge amount, or look papers and stuff, and you see what the options are, I mean, as a designer, I'm, I, I need options, and those <laughs> options aren't options, are they? The two options that we've currently got, you know, the ones that are kind of mm-hmm. in, the, in the lead there, it's just going... Is that it? Is that is that as good as we we've got? You and know? and this is where we're at. I think there's a lot of people who go, I don't want to be part of this two party race. Like the parties don't actually work for me anymore. And also, I think it's really interesting that um, you know all through school now, one of the things that um, kids are assessed on is their ability to collaborate, and that's mm. really valued. Then when you get into the workforce, that's also something that's really yeah. valued. But somehow we have this political system which is completely combative. So you have two parties and you're either for or against. And there's no sort of um, idea that actually we're stronger if we come together when we're tackling these really major issues and how do we sort of collaborate and and have a lot of different um, sort of perspectives um, that we consider. And I think that for me is where the if we can get a really good number of, I think there are now 26 independent candidates um, in either the Senate or the House of Representatives that are standing um, at this election, if we could get even half of them in, it completely changes mm. that equation. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the, the, the evolving door too. I mean, we've had so many <laughs> prime ministers in, this, in, a, in a very short period of time. Yeah. I mean, we need stability. We need, like any design project, you need you need that stability, not complacency. Yeah. Not he just like you go. Okay, I just need a solid team like us. We're a collective. Yeah. We're designed to be a collective. We choose who's the right people to be in this business, and they all bring in their, um, you know, variety of expertise that contribute to to do us doing better things. Um, but you need time to fix things. You need time to focus, and you need time to dig deeper into things, and yeah. like keep chopping and changing, and there's stupid arguments going on. Or the slagging match that yeah. goes on. It's just pathetic. It's so tedious, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's pathetic. Yeah. Um, how has the, the role of business uh, changed in society for you over the last 22 years since you've been in business? I or think... Was it 27? What was 22. it? 22. 22. Yeah, I think um, it's changed a lot, actually. Like, I, I think the um, this sort of idea that... Um, the role of a business was purely to be profitable for its shareholders has really been called into question. Mm-hmm. So, and that is both at the big kind of listed company and um, as well as, you know, a family-owned business. Um, so I think there is a much higher expectation and this is being reflected in directors' duties and in, um, you know, shareholders' expectations that, Um, a company needs to take into account all of its stakeholders when it's making decisions. And that includes, you know, what's happening environmentally um, to their teams, like how do they look after their employees, Um, you know, what happens with products at the end of their life cycle. Um, And I think, yeah, this has been sort of probably one of the most exciting things. I think the the actual market, so if you look at the listed sort of the stock exchange market and probably even private equity, I think they've still got a bit of catch up to do in relation to that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still sort of too driven by short term kind of results and this idea that you can just have this never ending growth. Um, and I don't know whether that is really realistic anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, these are going to be very interesting to watch how that evolves. 
Um, and I think, like, in a way, the fact that we're getting so many um, Australian companies who want to become B Corps, mm. um, to me, that sort of embodies that change that's happening in society. Um, you know, when you look at what a B Corp is about, like, it, it is about that balance between people, purpose and profit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a purpose-driven business is not just about sustainability because people think it's just Mm. all about sustainability. Of course, that's an important part of it, but it's around a a sustainable business in terms of uh, how, I mean, how do you ensure your business model is sustainable? Well, you have to be profitable. You know, it's not sustainable. Just like when we do our sort of impact work, we don't run it as a a not-for-profit. It's very difficult to be reliant on donations Mm. or... Um, you know, government kind of funding or something like that. It, it's it's a very changeable, you know, whim sort of based, the fashion changes and suddenly no one wants to invest in your idea. So you do have to have something that's built um, that has a level of, of profitability that's kind of built into the business model. And then for us more and more, it's around looking at the circular economy. So as sort of product producers, um, that's really about ensuring there isn't any waste. So there's a whole lot of work that we're doing to kind of re-engineer our business model um, to work within a circular economic environment. Mm. How, how many people do you have in your business? Uh, just under 30. Yeah. Mm. And um, are they all vegans? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, because obviously, I'm joking. My parents are vegans. I've been vegan on and off. I'm, I'm, I'm not having a, a jab. But, I mean, you guys are, you, you can't employ people that are not aligned with your um, values, values and, and your purpose, yeah. et cetera. We do a lot of work in recruiting um, to find people who are really values aligned. Mm, and you must attract them in the first place. Yeah, Exactly. Um, we, yeah, we definitely have found that we get more and more people who want to work with us um, because of, you know, who we are and what we stand for. Yeah. I've, I found, I mean, previously you took, got lots of advice from different business people. I didn't do an MBA, of course, which is blaringly obvious. But, you know, running a business has been my MBA or is mm. my learning. And continuously kind of looking at the business and, and, and redesigning it and desi- trying to focus on designing a better business. Yeah for the last 27 years. You'll never get there, but it gets better. Mm. And, and the things you learn and, and new technology. And I, I, I think that like, and, and originally back in London, you know, you kind of, a way of saying that you were a good business or not good business, but a attractive company to work with was the number of awards you won, mm. which in a way is, you know, that has a value, but it's kind of some form of, classification or certification that you are good or okay yeah. or, or uh, reliable in some way. But it, it didn't, it doesn't really, those awards in the early days were just often about a, a clever idea or a, uh, something that other designers liked. It didn't mean that they were actually successful projects in the, in the real world. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, looking out for, I mean, plumbers get certified. Um, designers I'm not sure if our industry gets certified. Architects, of course, do. Yeah. You know, um, our particular industry, I don't, I don't think we get certification. But it was really great to see B Corp as an organization that actually helped a business mm. understand what is the right things to do or the wrong things to not do. You know, like, and, yeah. and that was real, like, oh, wow. Here's not just about getting a stamp of approval, but this has actually helped us change our policies yeah. or, or in terms of maternity leave and all that paternity yeah. leave, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and um, I, I found that, well, we as a business, I found that really, really uh, positive contribution to knowing what is the right thing to, to do and to, to, to kind of have it uh, applied into our business mm. and knowing that we are, I mean, things might change and they might keep adding and evolving them. It's certainly not not a kind of a set and walk away from situation with becoming a B Corp, um, but but it's it's really I, I found that kind of really in a way liberating. Yeah, and I think it's challenging too, and that's a good thing. It's boring doing the same thing all the time, and it's good kind of having um, something that sits outside your organisation and it's sort of assessing it, and then because you've got to get certified. Um, 
you know, on an ongoing basis. You've got to get recertified. Mm. Um, the sort of idea is that you try and continually increase your score. So you might have got your original B Corp certification at 80-odd points, but the next time you're going to get recertified, ideally what you've done is kind of made further improvements in your business and your score increases and then you just keep trying to do that. And that's certainly the way we, we look at it. Is, how often does it get re-evaluated? Every two years. And have you passed every time? Yeah. Has <laughs> <laughs> it increased from 82? Yeah, it has. It has, 82 yeah. and a half? Uh, no, we're on, I think, our last certification, which we're just about to announce um, as part of B Corp Month. Um, I think we came in at 96, so oh. we're a bit disappointed because we really wanted to get over 100, but um, I think... Oh, can you get over 100? Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought it was up to 100. Mm-mm. So... What does it go up to then? <laughs> well, more than 100. More than 100. Well, I think we were 82.3 or, or something. Yeah. But anyways, there was, there was, it's interesting, like we're passionate about it. Um, and a lot of people are passionate about it. And there's a real awareness becoming, like mm. it's become super people aware of it. And still, there's only 4,000 plus companies in the whole world that are B Corp. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, talking to Andrew, he's been inundated by people who want to become B Corp, which is a great thing. Yeah. And obviously there's time and effort in terms of processing that. But I mean, I, what do you think that will look like in the future? Do you think that's just going to grow massively as an organization or as a, mm. a certification? Yes, and then what I hope sort of happens is that there's a tipping point and every business operates like a B Corp. Yeah. So um, it sort of no longer becomes a differentiator, um, that actually True. it's just the norm. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I think would be really interesting. And also, it's really cool because our, our teams are working with you guys, Frost Collective, on, um, on, your, on your brand, uh, refreshing the Coskella brand. Now, that brand's been around for quite a while. It's been around since you started mm-hmm. um, 22 years ago. Yeah. I, I always find it interesting when we work with friends because mm. <laughs> <laughs> i got to stay out of it a bit because i got to let the team step in and so it's professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that's why Russell's not here today as well. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's, it's, it's been, it was really great to kind of, it, I find it also really cool, um, a businesses of all sizes who have been in business for a long time that come in and say, hey, hey, can you help us kind of fo- help us re- refocus our business? You know, we, we've got ambitions to, to evolve and do other things. Um, but sometimes a business uh, hasn't got certain things worked out. And despite that, it's been very successful. And it's really cool that a business kind of, I guess, realizes one day that that's part of the brand that they mm. need to, uh, to look at. And we love that because often you go, well, hang on, they can't have any, they must have it all worked out. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's really cool to, it, for us, it's actually quite a relatively simple thing to, but it's, it's always easier when you talk to somebody else about their business or, talk, or, or, or help an, an, an individual with their life or whatever. Um, it's easier than doing it for yourself. You know, we continue looking at ourselves. It's harder to see yourself. And I, and I imagine that was the same thing for you guys. Yeah, definitely. We were really excited when you guys got your B Corp certification because I think, in a way, not only were you great designers, but the fact that, um, you know, and really probably the best in Australia, to be honest. Wow. Um, and then um, having that B Corp certification, in a way, that really... Um, sort of sealed the deal for us in terms of working with you. And we also are your, you know, friends. Mm. Um, But for us, like the real reason why we sort of wanted to go down this pathway was because we felt as though we were no longer clear in being able to articulate what we were about um, and that that sort of wasn't front and centre. Um, in our messaging, I think, and working with um, you guys has really helped us to um, clearly articulate that and then to bring that to life visually um, through design. Yeah, and that, that's thank you for that. It was an incredible compliment. <laughs> I'm not sure we're humble too. We don't. I don't. I'm not, we're always kind of you know trying try to do better, of course. Um, but it's interesting too because once you get your purpose really clearly defined. 
and your big big idea, the big brand idea, single-minded idea for your brand, uh, it helps, um, obviously, the founders, the leaders, get clarity around mm. that, but it equally, it certainly helps the team, yeah. the whole team, understand what the organization main purpose is and the mm. values, et cetera, and how, that, how they can live and breathe that in every single decision that they make. Yeah. It's in a way, it, it makes contributes to making business easier. Yeah. Business is bloody hard. Yeah, isn't it, it is. Yeah. What came out of that? What what is your brand purpose? Our brand purpose that um, we sort of identified with your team was that we um, transform the spaces and communities in which we live. Mm. So our sort of role is to do that on quite a human scale sort of level. So it's not about um, you know, doing the fit-outs and things, it's actually about the pieces that people interact with and mm. how we can transform the way a classroom, for instance, functions mm. by creating the right sort of furniture and um, with the right ethos. And it's really cool to see, um, obviously, your, your, big, your big idea for your organisation is uh, change-making. Um, and that has a lovely double meaning, of course, because you guys are all about... Um, the new, you know, rethinking and doing things in a, in a more sustainable way and f- the physically making of things, of objects. You you are a furniture company. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, you're constantly looking at how do you improve it. And it, it's been also cool to see how you guys evolved into, as you said, schools, uh, big corporate headquarters, um, uh, people's homes. Yeah. You know, studios like us, we got all the quadrants in here, which we love. <laughs> Ralph and Baxter are often lying around <laughs> on those. And um, staff trying to steal them. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Those quadrants are like a hit, aren't they? Are they have they been a big success for you guys? Yeah. They're sort of our number one selling furniture. Is product. it really? Yeah. It's incredible. And mm-hmm. and, it, and it works in, the, in so many different spaces. Yeah. And uh, the flex, it's the flexibility, I guess. And, the, and they're just beautifully beautiful to look at. But I think that in terms of change-making, the big idea around uh, the changes you contribute to society, like what you're doing with the with B Corp, what you're doing with Pass the Bill, you know, you're not just making furniture that looks nice. You're not just making some more chairs. Yeah. You're actually doing it with con- conscientiously as possible all the time, which is really, really cool. How have the employees felt about this, uh, this fo- refocus? Oh, everyone has loved it. So I think for the team, it's meant that there's real clarity um, around um, why we exist. Um, And I think that the idea of change making is also that we want to lead the industry. We're not sort of followers. And Mm. often that can be a bit scary for people. Um, You know, we're not following in someone else's footsteps. We're trying to break new ground. And that very much is um, sort of probably the way Russ and I approach kind of life, I guess, um, Mm. and what motivates us. Like Mm. neither of us have ever been people who were happy to kind of be followers. So we've always sort of tried to, you know, tread our own path and and then hopefully with some of the things that we're really working on now, it's to sort of um, provide a a roadmap for other organisations to follow. So not everyone has the ability to be as agile and... Um, flexible as we are and to be as responsive um, but you know and sometimes there are organizations that are more conservative um, but potentially we can pave the way and then they can follow um, which means then our impact is much much greater obviously with a, we, our, our brand uh, our brand purpose is to design a better world and that's something that we're passionate about is but it's something you can't switch on and off it's like, mm. well, let's just park that for a few months, yeah. <laughs> uh, have a break. The same thing with you, change-making is actually mm. something that you've got to live and breathe 24-7 as an organisation. Yeah. Do you regret that at some stage? Do you ever go, hang on a minute, I mean, I, 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 mean the, I, I also think that there is, as business leaders, there's also that time when you go, shit, I don't know the answers to stuff. Mm. I don't know what's going on right now. And I mean, the, you know what's going on in the world, but, we, but a lot of us, well, I guess society doesn't know yeah. what the future is looking like because it's changing so so rapidly, so much uncertainty. Mm. There's just like, it's it's a very rocky time, isn't it? It is. And I think the last two years really showed us that. So, um, which kind of did lead us to rethink um, some of our core values. And we did actually add one in there around change and the fact that 
it's really critical to us that people who work within our team view change as an opportunity for learning and growth um, and also recognise that, um, you know, we won't have all the answers. Like, we actually make that really clear mm. um, um, in our um, oath of employment. So, um, that, cool. yeah, that, um, that that just... That uncertainty is something that we've got to live with. Um, yeah. And also it brings opportunities and that's really exciting. And that's definitely how, you know, Russ and me, like yeah. we're really motivated by that um, and this sort of restlessness, I guess, um, to kind of continue to innovate and pursue new ideas. I know prior to the COVID, um, I hate to keep talking about COVID, but it is the situation that we're in right now is that prior to that, for a leader of a business to admit that you didn't know the answers was quite yeah. <laughs> quite worrying yeah. because people think that, you know, a leader should know everything. what the hell is going on and mm. the answer to everything. I felt like there's a big change happened with COVID that a lot of people stood up and said, you know what, I actually, I don't know the answers. Yeah. I remember standing in front of my staff, my whole team at one breakfast uh, on online, I guess, and saying that. And I kind of felt like, what's going to be the consequence of admitting mm. this? Yeah. Maybe you always were more I mean I'm, I'm open but I didn't I, I found it quite good in a way that I that the pressure was off of me personally as the mm. as the founder of the business to have all the answers. have all the answers yeah and then to actually go hey collectively let's let's work this out mm. and that that was a shift yeah you know? I I think that's we probably formalized that a bit more but that had certainly I think been kind of more how I like to work. So I actually really enjoy collaboration um, and sort of trying to um, develop solutions together. Mm. Um, it was definitely very stressful, particularly kind of year one of COVID. Like um, it's stressful, but then sort of exciting actually. So, you know, for us, there were real opportunities that came out of COVID. Mm. Um, opportunities to kind of transform and reinvent aspects of the business that we weren't probably super happy with. Um, and that was a really great thing. You've moved from Rosebury to a secret location, unless you want to talk <laughs> about that. But I mean, I just, I remember going, holy cow, that is genius timing again. Yeah. <laughs> or, or and, and seeing you guys you know, Russell sent me pictures of him in the in knocking down the interior and moving stuff, and I felt so sorry. Mm. It looked like he was by himself, but presumably <laughs> there was a bunch of other people helping. It's a huge space, beautiful space, and it must have felt it must have hurt leaving there for a bit. And I guess once you made that decision, you're energized into the new, right? Yeah, no, I'm. Yeah, no, I'm not a uh, <laughs> a backwards. <laughs> looker. Yeah. So Russ is much more sentimental um, than I am. Yeah. I'm really motivated by the future. And I don't often, mm. like one of the things I've really had to learn is to take time, particularly organisationally, for us to celebrate kind of milestones and successes. So mm. um, I'm sort of the kind of person that's just already moved on to the next thing and don't often... Um, I'll always reflect on the problems, so things we could have done better, but don't often reflect on the successes or things we did really well. Um, but for me, I was absolutely 110% ready to get out of there and couldn't wait. <laughs> so um, some, some particularly once we knew, you know, what our next sort of incarnation was going to look like. Yeah, I, I understand that. But a lot, of people, a lot of people don't move unless they're forced to move. Mm. Um, because it's such a daunting yeah. experience. I know when we, we moved from Redfern to here, uh, in between the COVID, the two COVIDs, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was like a window of opportunity to, to shift and also coincide with the end of our lease. So we felt liberated. We could actually downsize, re redesign the business in mm. terms of the space to half the size we had before, reduce the overhead costs. Yeah. Uh, because of the new way of working and flexibility, et cetera, it was like, okay, well, that was lucky mm. because actually if we had that, if we just entered a five-year lease prior to COVID, we would be, I mean, yeah. it would affect us detrimentally, I yeah. think, big time. Um, but that, that, yeah, that shift, poor old Russell, you have to you have to kind of hold his hand and bring him along <laughs> on your journey. Um, he's a sentimental soul, but like me, I, I get I get emotionally attached. I mean, I remember going back to the old studio and, you know, when everybody, you know, a few days that people had left and went home, I was like filming it, 
you know, thinking yeah, this, this is the end. Was him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and where, and yeah, I had someone from our team saying, oh, don't you want to go back and just, you know, kind of yeah. like sort of have closure of it? And I was like, no. no, no. <laughs> I do not want to go back. So it feels liberating. Oh, yeah. 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 And can you talk about what the future is, the new space, et cetera, spaces? I can. Okay, here we go. Um, so we... Um, are about to open at a pretty incredible site um, that we found when we were renting um, a place while our house was being um, renovated. And it's called HMAS Platypus. So um, it's a site that is administered or run by the Harbour Trust. Um, It was kind of strange because as we were kind of nearing the end of our lease um, at Rosebury, I'd been thinking about um, what our next step mm. would be and what, you know, the where we would want to be and why and started to think about something that was um, quintessentially... I sort of felt like I would love to find something that felt quintessentially Sydney. Um, and that meant that it would have to be a site that had a relationship to the harbour and then lo and behold the site appeared and it's this incredible site that um, was an old submarine training school and a torpedo factory during the second world war it started off it's on beautiful Camaragal country so it's a big move Um, Mm. it's on the other side of the bridge um, which a lot of people have a psychological barrier about Um, But we're right on the harbour. I guess retail had changed over the course of COVID. Mm. So um, it gave us a really good opportunity to kind of rethink what that retail experience was about, particularly because we'd seen sort of the rise of um, e-commerce and people feeling happier to buy online. Yeah, that's been incredible, hasn't it? Yeah. Thank God for that. I know. Thank God. Um, And... Then it was really about, well, what sort of experience can we give a customer? So if they're going to come to our store, like what does that mean? Um, And how can we make it the most inspiring sort of experience um, that we can for them? And also for our team. So our office is down there. So, um, yeah, we're super excited. I mean, it's another destination, isn't it? It's another exciting destination. I remember going to Rosby for the first time. I was like, wow. This, is yeah. like, this feels like a long way from the city, but yeah. it's, not, it's not that far, of course. Uh, Sydney's mm. incredible. You can get anywhere in 10 yeah. minutes, 20 minutes. But I, I think it's a, it's really cool that you think that way because it actually people benefit from that. You know, people who have then interact with your brand and, and make, the, make the journey to go see your new, your new headquarters stuff will, um, will love it and enjoy that, that whole experience that you've designed. You guys do a lot of corporate headquarters, um, fit-outs, et cetera. We do a lot of signage, signage systems for these types of places. Have you seen a slowdown around that kind of like, because there's this, this issue with, uh, you know, in the CBD, there's mm. this issue with people aren't coming back into the city as much as um, you know, people would like, and a lot of businesses are suffering from that. From that. The yeah. support businesses are suffering for that. Have you seen a slowdown in commissions for corporate headquarters in terms of that? Um, we've sort of, we've had quite a few bigger projects, I guess, that were already pre-committed, so they have still gone ahead. Um, but I think there will probably be a period of transition and change. Mm. Like, I think there's a real, um, we will, I don't think we'll ever go back to being in an office 24-7 where that's the only place you can work. Like, Mm. I think there is a much bigger shift to a sort of a work anywhere um, kind of set up, but I think there is a real role to play for a physical space to bring people together, mm. to give them a sense of kind of ownership. Like I think there is something important about that um, mm. and about um, kind of having a space where you can all come together and collaborate. I think collaboration in particular has been, um, it's really difficult, particularly in a design sense, um, to do virtually. Um, I don't think you can generate the same kind of ideas when you're not actually sitting in the same room Mm. together. Um, And I also think that people are social Mm. and 
And there's a real need to kind of do that, to develop bonds between people um, and to develop a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really hard to do that when everyone's virtual. And I also think that um, there's a real danger that if everyone's working remotely, they become much more about themselves um, and much less about the collective. Um, so I think sort of there will still be a role to play for the office, but it will be different. It's interesting. I think there's two categories, the extroverts and the introverts, and a lot of creative people are introverts who like the kind of the to working from home mm. or elsewhere, even though, yeah, you're right, in terms of collaborating, we, we, want, we want people to kind of come in and, and collaborate and draw on the walls and mm. have a laugh and a coffee and express ideas and that, that interaction that you just can't, I mean, you, you, you can get it online, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Like our podcast today is a better podcast because we're not doing it through, um, through the internet, I think. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people who are introverts who, who actually, f- you know, are comfortable being mm. at home or comfortable not coming in. So that you're also going to be and, and focus on not having interu- interruptions because obviously in a in a physical space you're constantly being interrupted by, you know, other people walking in a meeting or dogs mm. or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I kind of been in, intrigued by and again I don't think everybody has the answers and it's going to evolve over time. But like, what would the CBD look like? What would our cities look like if this continues like as it is? Mm. You know, what will they evolve into? Yeah, and I think we will see like that hybrid kind of way of working as being something that gives people a greater quality of life, doesn't impact productivity. So it allows mm. you to do those tasks where, you know, you are required to work um, on a more analytical sort of basis, maybe solely, like without a team. Um, they can really be done much more productively at home than within mm. a, an office often. Um, I don't know what impact it will have for the CBD, whether, um, you know, we will end up with a situation which we saw sort of last year where really Tuesday to Thursday were the days when the city was busy um, and Monday and Fridays were often days when people were working from home. So Friday night drinks shifted to Thursday night drinks, like for, you know, a lot Mm. of workplaces. Um, Somehow we need to sort of, if we're looking at kind of a waste minimisation strategy, you don't want to have all these offices sitting there empty two days a week. So how do you kind of recreate them so that they become the spaces that people need to work from? There was talk prior to, you know, many years ago around the evolving cities and what they might look like going forward because our our cities, or Sydney is uh, predominantly, it's a relatively small city compared to other, other cities of this world still a nice city, um, but it's predominantly corporate. Um, there is more residential coming through, mm. but I think that like a lot of cities around the world, I reckon you know, more mm. move towards converting corporate headquarters to residential or mixed use, red part resident, part shared kitchen, yeah. shared facilities. It would be a much more attractive way of, of living, I think. Mm. Um, having said that, so many people have, dispersed out of the, yeah out of now they're the out city. in sort of regional centers yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and they yeah. actually quite like that mm. um you got two boys you mentioned before is there ambitions for them to be involved in the business in the future uh i i have said to them no <laughs> so okay so i'm yes. i'm <laughs> i said find you know the thing that drives you both um and pursue that wholeheartedly don't think that this is sort of um something that you have to do, um, yeah, I, don't, I just um, would prefer that they find something that they're really passionate about. And do, they, do they ever say, hey, mum, what the hell do you guys do? I mean, do they, do they know what you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting, like, my oldest son has started doing business studies um, and we were in the car, I had to do a catch-up with the team and... Um, he was like, oh, that was really interesting, Mum. That was just all the stuff oh. that I've been learning in business studies. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, they, they, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of dinnertime conversation and things um, about the business or part of, part of our dinnertime conversation probably covers off 
aspects of the business. Um, like I'm doing a podcast tomorrow with Vince. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's happen. it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and your other son, is he creative? Like Russell, is it, is it like you got yin and yang going on there as well? Uh, they're both kind of creative but in different ways, I think. So one's um, that sort of creative problem-solving brain maybe more, but mm. I don't know. You know, they're still young and I don't want to put them into boxes. No, no, no. no. But great exposure uh, they were having every day. Um, I asked you guys in 2018... And you both replied, probably not. <laughs> and the question again is, since then, have you, do you think you've designed your life? I'm not trying to <laughs> eventually get you to say yes. <laughs> um, I was, yeah, sort of thinking about this as I was driving over here. And I think you, there is kind of, well, in one way, COVID has sort of upended everything. So, you know, you could have had all the grandest plans in the world um, and none of it would have come off. But it's sort of funny, I think, as you get older, you probably, and this sounds a little bit sad, but you probably get a bit more, um, you want to sort of start to live your life with more intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so I think maybe you do sort of start to design it a little bit more and think a bit more about what you want out of life yeah. um, and how you carve out time to, you know, volunteer on a political campaign or do whatever it is that, you know, really motivates you and that you kind of love or spending more time with family, um, thinking about where you kind of want to go next, I guess, like as well. Um, and something we sort of implemented within our teams this year was really a, um, we've done a goal-setting exercise with everyone. So really getting people to think about, like imagining it's the end of this year and they're look, looking back on the year that they've mm. had, mm. what are the highlights, what did they want to actually get out of it? And so starting to sort of get people to realise like you can – despite COVID and whatever else the world may throw up, you can actually um, live your life more deliberately mm. instead of just kind of going with the flow of it. Yeah, incremental change, visualise the future and, and work towards yeah. achi achieving that. It doesn't have to be kind of about greed and yeah. money and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but look at, looking at how he might live and work better. Yeah. Um, and I think COVID kind of taught us that, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Like people started to find pleasure in small things that maybe they hadn't before. Um, yeah. And that's been and, – and I think also this for some people and, that, you know, unfortunately for some that – for some people it didn't apply, but for some of us we were lucky enough to sort of step off a treadmill that we were running on mm. and take time to actually contemplate life and what was important. Really and agree. I think that's been really good. Really agree. I mean, it felt – same thing for me. I felt like sitting there – I was sitting there for, for weeks on end, it felt – Look, like looking out out the window yeah. <laughs> or, or it's like you know it, it, it forced us all to stop mm. or certainly slow down or it, it was a form of restriction yeah and and, and life it, and we're lucky we're so lucky in this country that we're free mm. uh, other places aren't of yeah. course but we're free and that freedom is is a wonderful feeling um, and I guess we're so used to being restrained in any kind of way mm that it, it felt, you know, you were like trying to get out of this kind of straitjacket feeling. Yeah. But then you kind of, over time, became comfortable with it. You, I, I, f I felt comfortable with it. And I, it made me think differently about mm. my what's important for me in, in life. Yeah, I found like real genuine pleasure in a lot of kind of those moments. You know, um, we sort of started a ritual where we started making our own pizza doughs with the boys and... Um, we'd do that two days before we were going to eat it and then we did things where we had um, a fire pit at home and we created like a campfire cook-up oh. and we tried all different ways of cooking and stuff on a Saturday night as <laughs> just something to kind of yeah. break the routine. But it was really fun and actually all being together and having lunch together in the middle of the day. And, they was, and you know, even just sort of little moments with neighbours and people in the neighbourhood um, it was actually, it was really nice mm. and it it just, yeah, I had a lot more fun this lockdown than the first, like this last lockdown than the first one um, and just learnt how to kind of, I'm, I went into it going, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm going to use it as an opportunity to kind of rethink things and to take pleasure out of what I could. 
it humanized us, didn't it? Or yeah. rehumanized us. Yeah. We kind of got so far away from that, which is like a, a crazy situation. People listening in, obviously this is the B Corp series. Um, we, what would you say to people? How, how would you say to people like, hey, you gotta, you got to become B Corp? Like what, what's your kind of <laughs> I pitch? say it all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what, what is it? What do you say to people? Um, I just I basically say like this. Uh, I guess it's an opportunity to learn. So um, I'm very motivated by that personally, but um, it's an opportunity to kind of really get into the nitty gritty of your business, to learn new things and also to become part of a really incredible community um, and to feel like, um, to really sort of help you consolidate your purpose, um, you know, why you have this business. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, for me, that's sort of probably been... Um, some of the most exciting things. And the, I've definitely met some incredible people um, that are either working, you know, for B Corps or they're B Corp-led um, businesses and have, um, yeah, really couldn't put a price on that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. cool. And then and then uh, the new HQ, uh, where is it? What's the address? When does it open? And how do people get hold of you guys? Um, so we will open in March and we are, um, at HMAS Platypus, which is 120 High Street, North Sydney, mm-hmm. um, right on the beautiful Camaragal sort of foreshores of, um, Sydney Harbour. Fantastic. I can't wait to come down and have a look at that. And then the website, just coskella.com.au. Sure is. Okay. Fantastic. There's a new one coming up very shortly, right? It'll be launched at the same time our new headquarters open you guys get shit done that's for sure (laughs) sasha thank you so much for coming along today it's great to see you yeah thanks vince it's been a pleasure cool thanks for listening in to today's episode of design your life business for good with the brilliant sasha tishkowski co-founder and ceo of koskela tune into the next episode where i'll be catching up with cliff ho co-founder and managing director of The Commons, Australia's leading co-working space provider, on what the future of the workplace looks like. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.